Hello, friends. Welcome back to another episode of the Wild User Interviews podcast. Today, I've got with me Zaitwarp. Zaitwarp is a semi-pseudonymous Gen X garage artist and music hacker based in Cambridge, United Kingdom. His artwork is entirely conceptual with overarching themes of paradox, transience, obsolescence, and transformation. We'll be getting into those in a minute. His work is mainly audiovisual with MP4 sound and visionscapes that combine music graffiti, paintings, photography, and physical installations with digital manipulation and sound production. Welcome, Zaitwarp. Yeah, hey, AVB. How are you doing? I am very excited to have you. Was that a good introduction? Yeah, you covered it. I mean, I've heard it before because uh, I think I wrote it a few times out myself. But uh... <laughs> I am extremely happy to have you as a guest because you are, to date, the guest that has provided the most comprehensive information and like interesting things to talk about. So thank you. That's it. That's the thing. You see, when uh, you spend your life thinking about trying to do things the best you can in, in terms of your artwork, when someone says, can you write me an intro or give me a bit of detail about what we might talk about, you end up writing 10 pages. And uh, even then you think, oh, I'm not very happy with that, but what the hell. That would probably lead us to a first point or something that strikes out that would may make you a very interesting uh, guest for our listeners, which is... You are not the average age of the crypto community. <laughs> Most people have been around for three months and they're probably in their teens. But yeah. also you bring in a very strong artistic and philosophical <clears throat> approach. Where should we start? I, well, I can tell you a bit of my entry point into crypto. Well, it wasn't even called Web3 then. I was in, obviously, despite the youthful appearance, I'm in my mid-50s. And I, I've done a lot of different things. I've been, I've been a futures trader. I, I ran a gambling brokerage. But pretty much I've been on my own doing things for the last 30-odd years. And I came out of a business in 2014. I had this idea to set up some kind of... I uh, like a British Bauhaus. I got involved in a furniture business and I had these ideas about bringing in this kind of like high concept design and architectural and artistic furniture into mass production. And basically it was a bit of a disaster and, and not a disaster. I learned a lot from it. And I came out of that in 2014. I was looking around thinking, okay, so what's interesting? And, and Bitcoin had just had its first pump after, I say first pump, really from $30 up to about $1,000. And I thought, this is interesting. This is post the sort of 2008, 2009 economic crisis. Inflation was coming down the road at some point. Turned out it took 13, 14 years to get there. But they're printing money left and center. I'm looking at looking around, reading and thinking, this is interesting. And so I actually started dipping my toes into Bitcoin about, well, literally... February 2014, so just over eight years ago. And I had a strategy, a long-term strategy to get heavily involved in it. I thought about how to set up a pension fund with using crypto. And no, I didn't. No, I didn't do any of these things. That's what's so interesting. Um, you wouldn't what, be an artist if you did, because you would be filthy rich. The thing is, you can't stop being an artist if that's what you want to do. That's the whole point. And uh, this is the thing why I always refer to that Bowie quote. But the story of very quickly, what happened was the Mt. Gox uh, hack happened with about a week after I started uh, getting involved. And I was I was looking at crypto, thinking, looking at it, it literally was Bitcoin plus a load of other altcoins, which are all gone now. And um, and I was looking at uh, Bitcoin. I was thinking, yeah, it's interesting. You know, it's had this massive pump because of the the uh, currency controls put in place in Cyprus. And uh, and I was thinking, yeah. So I started dipping my toe in. I bought Bitcoin, bought another one. I had this sort of buy down strategy. And then I woke up next day, turned on my computer, and it was down 87%. <laughs> and I just thought, ah, oh, fuck, you know, 
<laughs> Excuse my the language. Yeah. Apsis is worse than the English Central Bank. I said, okay, fine. So I turned my computer off for about another three years. And, and I, not that I lost faith in it, but I didn't come back really to the sort of ICO craze of 2017. And again, it's the ironies of life. By this point, I'm back to doing art full-time and without making a commitment to be full-time as an artist, which came about a year later. I'm looking at crypto kitties and I'm, and I'm thinking, I don't get this. <laughs> See, life, as they say that quote in the Matrix, life is uh, not without a sense of irony. And basically, I probably passed up the two big opportunities in crypto and one of them particularly in art, just because they failed the credibility test at the time. And that might be something to do in a circular way, something to do with being perhaps the age I am, the experience I am. I've had, I worked in futures, you know, in derivatives markets in the 90s, 80s and 90s. And I'm used to the esoteric sort of end of spectrum of finance. And, but even, yeah, I failed the credibility test. And so I ended up, you know, not diving all in like I probably should have done, but I didn't do too bad, but equally I'm not a Meta Kovan or somebody like that. There are so many things there. The first one is you mentioned the Bowie quote, but you didn't say what the quote is. I've got it here handy. The quote is, I think aging is an extraordinary process whereby you become the person you always should have been. Yeah, it's fantastic, isn't it? Yes. And for someone who is a little bit earlier in life, I can start to appreciate how it is a hundred percent true. <laughs> yeah. That's the thing. We try on all these personalities when you're younger and, and some people come with these personalities. And one of the things that happens is, you know, one of my other great interests philosophically is, is the Sartre and Camus stuff about the void. And maybe it's as you start running out of years or the sand starts falling through the, 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 the hourglass, you start basically suffering less bullshit either about yourself or the world. I, I don't know. Maybe it's hard to project your own experiences. But all I do know is that you find yourself thinking, it's a great comfort, the Bowie quote, even if it's not true, but I like to think it's true because it feels true to me. And we can have an eco chamber here. I'm with you. Yeah, yeah. Good, good. The way that I see it, and I'd love to see what you think about it. I think everyone's got like raw materials in them and they wander through life with those raw materials and everything is cyclical. I love speaking with people such as yourself that they've been around through a few cycles because it's fascinating to see how the same raw materials and interests and curiosity play out very differently. In the 90s, it would have been futures as the esoteric thing at the time. Now it may be crypto. And I do think that there's a natural compounding of these people that have had those raw materials that are like paving the way for the next generation of people that have the same materials. Now, what is the most interesting is that if we think about perhaps technologists or artists or people leading in the field, what I love about those industries is that they may be relatively small by the number of people that actually operate in them, but the impact that they can have in society is like outsized. So yeah, you yeah. only need a handful of people with the right ingredients in the right context to be able to influence the world. And I think that's where we're at now. Yeah, yeah. I, I think curiosity is a big thing. Interesting, another dimension of the age discussion is this uh, obviously wonderful phrase, okay, boomer. And I had a discussion, a very brief discussion with a guy called Eric Second Realm, one of the trash art guys on Twitter, about whether it's the difference between being a boomer and boomerism 
And part of that is curiosity. Look, David Bowie's dead. And, and even if he was alive, he'd be 30 years older than me almost. That's an exaggeration. But the point is, no one thinks of Bowie as a boomer because he maintained a curious mind and he looked forward and he was, as I said, I've done a few things. And one of them, I got involved in an internet startup in the late nineties and Bowie's on the cover of net magazine, which was the big internet magazine in the States when we had things called magazines. And there he is right out the front with this, again, a wonderful quote about the internet, how it's going to bring out the best and the worst of people. I actually quoted that again in my entry for the, the hackathon last week, because that's the whole point is that the spectrum of human behavior is on show and the internet and it's accelerated it. And Bowie saw that. No one would accuse him of being a boomer, despite the fact he qualifies as an age. And despite the fact he, like I, have had the generational benefit. And that's the key thing for me is you can retain a curious mind and you can go forward. As you're part of my whole work is about this idea of nostalgia being, there being a dark side to it and perhaps it should come from a, with a warning. And this if you maintain this curiosity and you, you, know, you retain yourself open to developments and you look forward and yeah, you can remake and remodel the past and you can learn from it and be informed by it, but to be stuck in it or to wish for things to go backwards is just that to me is a definition of boomerism, really. I think that if we try to make the distinction between boomerism and boomers, boomerism, it, it's a close attitude of wanting to go to the past maybe when things were simpler, maybe when they were more familiar. But I think that being a boomer, as in age-wise, but with an open mind and curiosity and critical thinking, I think it's actually the opposite. And I'm projecting here a little bit because I feel like there are people that feel like there's a mismatch between their age and I guess like the life that they live. Mm -hmm. And there's even like a bit of a thirst to catch up and to do more and to learn more. Because maybe they lived through times when they weren't able to achieve their maximum potential. There are a lot of people that are constantly revisiting what maximum potential is. And they're constantly repositioning themselves as to what they can achieve. They don't really follow the traditional timeline uh -huh. of I'm 25, I get married, I'm 30, I have kids, I'm 40, I own a house, I'm 55, I retire, I'm 60, I die. That timeline, they've completely destroyed it. And yeah, they're constantly reassessing what's possible. Some of that definitely comes through in some of your art. And I'll be linking to all your profiles and all the work out there. But I love even just like the choice of words. So I'm looking at the paradox of retro utopianism. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What does that even mean? The idea that retro utopianism is the idea that things were better in the past. Uh, and I think there's an inherent paradox in, in, in retro utopianism in the sense that I don't believe things were better in the past. People who do are suffering from some kind of arrested development, either culturally or emotionally. And equally, we can't go backwards. If you literally, unless you have your time machine, in which case you go back and buy a lot more Bitcoin in 2014. And we know there are no time machines. Otherwise, there'd be people doing that all the time. There's, you can't go back. You have to go forward. Denying the present because of what happened in the past all it does is affect your future prospects. And so that's that to me. So it's a paradox on two levels, but yeah. Arrested development, social or cultural, damn, that, that's a heavy hitting statement. But yeah. I, I think you're correct. And a potential way of looking at it would be that the present is better and the future is better. 
but it's not better because it is given to us better. It's only better because we have more tools to make it better. Like we're bringing down the barriers. Mm -hmm. I posted a tweet recently, which somebody misinterpreted actually, comparing how legacy education charges you hundreds of thousands of dollars to a saturated job markets. I was comparing that with living in an era of open information. And how there are people that are teaching themselves how to code, they're teaching themselves how to use tools to create art. And now they've got a new world of opportunities. Easy to get a job as a developer? I'm not making the case. Is it easy to learn how to code? No. Is it easy to learn how to mix images? Definitely not. Is it easy to stand out as an artist? Definitely not. But the barriers are coming down. So there is definitely the revisionist history of people looking at the past and thinking that things were better only because things have been settled. And it is easy for people that have already made it in the current environment because they've already overcome those barriers, which they may be lower, but you still have to overcome them. Yeah, I think that's. I think an interesting point you make is something, I, two things I should talk about myself. There, look, there is a generational advantage to having been born in the past if you, in terms of prospects and opportunities. And those people you talked about, I, I knew people who came out of school with no qualifications and getting a job within a bank was still possible or in the finance sector. That seems absurd now. Your your tweet about how the, the hundreds of thousands you have to spend going through college in the States and then fight everybody else in a Hunger Games to the death to get the one internship at, at a certain brokerage 30, 35 years ago, it was not that difficult. And so there is a huge generational advantage. And so people like, you mentioned Dell and Steve Jobs and uh, and Bill Gates. I myself dropped out of university. So obviously that's the big four, including me. And, they're, they're <laughs> they, and they could do that because it wasn't such a punishing competitive environment. And that's the big problem for me. My son's a jazz musician. And you could be, if you were one of 50 guys in London in 19... 19- 54 or something like that you were probably made it you were probably going to be on most of the records he's he's in his mid-20s and it's a struggle he does pretty well he's pretty successful but it's a struggle i have onboarded him into near and into crypto but it's interesting that's that's part of the attraction of near in some respects and when i talk about near is the fact that we are dealing with a carbon neutral blockchain because those guys and girls they're just not interested in 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 eth and things like that they just heard the bad headlines and it's only uh, something like near represents an opportunity to them and obviously i've segued that around but it's an interesting fantastic, point. fantastic plug <laughs> now we'll we'll get to, to near and the blockchain component in a minute i think there's another brilliant quote the future is already here. It's just not evenly distributed. Yeah, I heard that. I heard that a couple of weeks ago. It's fantastic. I love it. And I really like that Balaji is currently blurring the line between a country and a company and a technology and a generation of people. Mm. Because I, I migrated to Australia in 2008. And it's not that long ago, but even I can now see the generational advantage. I've been saying for as long as I've been in Australia that Australia is a United States 50 years ago, 60 years ago. It's a much younger country, much smaller. Yes, if you're European or American, you go to Australia. Some cities may feel very small or people are just surprised at how small it is, despite it being an entire continent and I guess having good marketing internationally. But yeah, I see it like from the day that I landed every year, the migration policy slightly tightening. And you can see the correlation between the more advanced the technology, 
the shorter the distances or the perceived distances, the more people were willing to go, you know, that far looking for opportunities, the more they closed the borders. And even just with when I had casual jobs at university, those jobs at bars and restaurants are still paying the same than what I was earning 10 years ago. Yeah. The cost of living has gone up. Yeah, so yeah. When I was living there, my generation, it was very normal for Australians to start working at 16. They're buying the first cars. They move out when they're 18. Now I know people who live at home until they graduate. I'm sure I can see that. I can see the link, but it's true. There's, you know, uh, inequality is at an all-time high. It's it, it, people say that, but that's probably only in a post-industrial world. I don't know. I just don't know. I don't have. Although, despite the fact I did it, my my degree was in economic and social history, which I didn't finish. I, there's lots I should know, but a lot more about it in that. But it just the, I see the change in inequality in my lifetime, and it's quite unbelievable. The the most potent criticism against capitalism, I guess it's also the winning argument. Mm. It is true that we live in an increasingly unequal society, but poor people today have the living standard than kings did back in the day. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. So it, it, it's very strange how we've basically uncapped how much you can have, but we've raised the minimum for well, yeah. at least more and more people increasingly over the world. Obviously it's not the same depending by region. Now, I'd like to focus a little bit more on your art and maybe we can do it in a really controversial way to create a clip for the Instagram to promote the episode. Your art has meaning. Your art is one out of one. There is a lot of thought and, and work that goes into it. It has been described as the art of ideas. It has a purpose of making people consider things in different ways that they hadn't previously. I'd like to learn a little bit more about that art process but also maybe would be useful to contrast it, or I'd like to get your thoughts to separate points on what you think of the current NFT space. Because I can see how there could be a tension between you creating digital art and crypto giving you an incredible market to, I guess, like share that. And also the current momentum being on more, uh, a different type of art. Yeah. <laughs> Leave it open and pass over the mic. Yeah, it's an interesting subject. And first of all, I'm an artist. I was, I describe myself as an outsider because that's a classical distinction and definition of somebody who didn't have formal art training. And art brew or outside art is somebody who hasn't gone through the system three years at art school, etc. I'm in no position and I'm certainly not going to be drawn into gatekeeping anybody else about what is and wasn't, what isn't art. For me personally, I can only deal with my own definition of what I feel that my art is or what I feel that the art I'm trying to make is, which is conceptual art, because it's an art that deals with ideas and there is a superficial visual aesthetic, which is trying to appeal to people while also selling them the idea underneath. That makes it sound like advertising, but it's conceptual advertising in the sense that I'm trying to, there's something that's not lecturing. It's basically the, the paradox that we talked about earlier is within me, okay? All those objects that I use in my videos, I own those. They're strewn around my house. And Can you describe some of those if people have okay. seen them? So there are, I use things, I often use a lot of audiovisual pieces like the boom boxes, old cameras, the cassette. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The boombox thing. Yeah. And that's that's just lives and lives that image. It goes all the way around the world. I, I got a lovely photo today of it being projected onto a building in Berlin last summer, which I will be tweeting. Your photo. Later. Yeah, no. Amazing. Uh, which by the way, I should have mentioned earlier that 
if you've seen the artwork for the podcast and you love it, it is your artwork. You it is. won that competition. Yeah, I so sort of won, didn't I? <laughs> Maybe. We may be corrupt. Okay, so <laughs> if the winner is listening, I'm sorry. I should have been a bit more clear with the guidelines. Technically, the design that won fair and square had my face on it. Like I was part of the logo. And at the time, I wanted to be a bit more low-key. And yours came close second. And I must say, without knowing your entire background, and this is probably a really good test about whether it is hitting home it did strike that note. There was something about it that felt nostalgic. It spoke to me as past, present, and future. I think because it's so abstract. Yeah. It went really well with what the podcast tries to be about people, product, crypto. It's a merge between, I really like to understand where people come from. Yeah, yeah. People that I see in the ecosystem and that, that I really admire and respect, and I think are going to go far. We don't get those out of cereal boxes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they have yeah. a history of experience. And yeah, I think that as abstract as it is, the mm. messiness of it, the variety of colors, I just thought it was perfect. And oh. I still paid out the winner. And I feel like we ripped you off because I have no <laughs> idea how much we gave you for the winning design, but we should probably settle that later. <laughs> <laughs> I'm happy. I'm happy with it. Yeah. Return to us. The theme I was saying is the, uh, the, the paradox. And so these are objects, I use these old objects, nostalgic objects that I own, that I collect, that I find interesting. And, and the idea is that you basically, you, I present them in such a way as to represent the internal dialogue that I'm having about them, because I'm somebody who talks about progressiveness and thinking and going forward. And yeah, I have all these objects we have in crypto. There's this fascination with the past, retrophilia with the, with 8-bit, with all these kind of like people go, oh, hey, yeah, cool Walkman. I use Walkmans all over the place. That's not really the point I'm making, but yeah. It, and there's this, so the visual attraction, there's a sort of tension between the looking at something and thinking, okay, that's, yeah, yeah, I like that. And also, well, why has it got a warning sign on? Because I'm trying to say there's, there's something else going on here and it's representing my own issues. I play, this is one of my bases, I play bass in, in a nostalgia band, a tribute band with two of the guys I went to school with. We play gigs in a tribute band playing music from the past because the tension is internal as well as external. I'm, so when I'm trying to communicate something with my art it's not just that it's not a lecture it's not you shouldn't like nostalgia because we all do the point is i like it as well but the problem is i don't want to get political too much but there's what got my attention about five years ago was friends of mine coming in and they were you know to my house and when people were allowed in to come to your house and admiring these objects and then spending the next hour ranting about brexit and trump and how these people were living in the past and you're sitting there thinking with someone with my ear and eye and mind for these things i'm sitting there thinking well hey there you go that's that's interesting because there's an attraction for nostalgia and they're, they're sitting there saying what a ridiculous thing to go back to the past we've got a, a minister in the uk who's seriously investigating reintroducing imperial measures and the benefits of it and it's just really and but that was what was interesting about to me there's two main themes that I work on in this way. One is this, this work is all called the nostalgia show. And there's, it's been going on for years, for five years, pieces that, that basically I take bits of nostalgic, attractive nostalgic material, combine them with one of my paintings as a background, manipulate the hell out of it and try and get people to 
go beyond just the superficial visual appeal of the object and to understand why I've wrapped it in a warning sign or why there is a warning. Because there are consequences to living in the past. Personally, if you are, you go to a therapist and they say you're stuck in the past, people accept that that's perhaps an issue. Now, I, I think nostalgia is healthy as long as you just look at it and think, yeah, that's nice. How do we go forward? But some people literally live in the past. And especially my age, I come across people like that all the time. And that's part of the discussion on boomerism is that living in the past is not the way to go. Is it possible that people that are stuck in the past in some conscious or unconscious way hold a grudge against their peers who at the time would have been the curious ones and the contrarian ones and the critical thinkers and were the ones that pushed the needle? Because when I look at these objects, and I find it fascinating that if you show some of them to young people, they would literally not know what they are, and they would struggle to believe that you could only carry whatever 12 songs and you had to listen to them sequentially. So the first thing that comes to my mind is the curiosity of how did we make the quantum leap between having a Walkman and then a CD and then lovely time in history, which I was just young enough to participate in, was the illegal torrenting. Yeah, And then I had the pleasure of studying all the legal battles that ensued. And nowadays we've got Spotify. If you had told me 20 years ago that I was going to have all of the world's music on my phone, I would have never believed it. No. So that curiosity and critical thinking, I guess it goes both ways. In the first point would be boomers feeling like they're probably missed out on that value creation and being forced to adapt when they were just like chilling with what was yeah. there at the time. But also the second component would be, how can we instill that sense of curiosity in younger people or in everyone really, but mostly younger people that didn't live through it for them to ask questions. And there are a ton of lessons just to see how technology has progressed so much. And a big assumption there is we're assuming that all technology is good. But maybe we can see at some technology nowadays and then compare it with what we had in the past. And rather than being stuck in nostalgia, we could create some frameworks to assess, okay, we don't want to go back to the past, but maybe what we have now, it's not serving us. How can we create the next iteration? And I'm thinking something like social media. Yeah. Social media is fascinating. It's, uh, this is the Bowie thing about the net unleashing both the best and the worst of humanity. And I don't think any better statement exists about it. And then let's face it, in crypto, the issues we have with hacks and scamming, it's just, we are talking about something. This is, again, the MetaBuild Hackathon thing I recently did about the future of the web, the near foundation challenge. And I was making the point, it's a choice between dystopia and utopia, and it's a personal choice really, but that's all you can do because... Yeah, I think it's the web is basically a tool, such as any tool. You know, this great saying, guns don't kill people, humans do. Knives don't kill people, humans do. They're fantastic tools as well. And yet it's about our ability and our personal use of those tools determines the outcome. I love your humility because when you mention the MetaBiddle challenge, the hackathon from Nier, you have conveniently skip the part where you won. You were the winner of that. In a parallel of the wild user interview logo contest, I believe I came second. <laughs> but they put winner on everything. But no, that's, that's all right. I'm pretty pleased with that. Yeah, it was, they said, yeah, it's an unusual statement, winner, for applied to the first three people. But 
I suppose you are a winner of some description, but yeah. So anyway, I came second, but I enjoyed doing it. It was one of those things I, I don't know where I'm going to ever mint it. The things, the high res version is 150 meg. Uh, at some point I'll be able to mint it somewhere, but it's going to crash somebody's platform. We're just going to take you back to the conversation we are having about the place of conceptual crypto art, which is how I feel my work is against the current landscape of NFTs and obviously particularly on Nier. I think it's a really interesting discussion because there's a lot of one-on-one crypto art guys and girls on Twitter complaining it's not fair, saying, wow, it's not fair. I'd say hours of this work these people do. I I think it's a fundamental misunderstanding of what actually uh, the PFP market is and what they represent. And I do think personally, this is not so much for me. And I don't know, you have to be authentic to yourself. I'm not going to change my style. I'm probably not going to change my way of of interacting with the community. And I'm probably not going to change the way my minimal efforts on social media. But I think that, again, Eric at Second Realm, he makes the point that rather than complain, you should turn up every day and grind and work and interact and just make yourself better rather than complain it's unfair. Board Ape t- changed the PFP market completely forever. And they're really about this combination of community, utility, with graphic art. It's what I would call graphic art as opposed to conceptual art. But at the end of the day, as I said, it's, it's all art. And the they're really kind of a membership uh, or, a, you know, unfortunately, maybe even a security. They may be seen as a security. They probably are a security. Let's, uh, let's just skate over. We can always delete this bit later. Nobody advertises future benefits for, for very good reasons. But they the truth of the matter is that they're a completely different thing. They're fantastic community utility combinations with graphic with rarity separated graphic art and to me one of one of one artists if they want to make it they have to work hard and learn from the success of the pfp market rather than complain about it being unfair that's that's what i would say i, I mean interesting ever one of the guys on actually i don't know if he's a guy one of the artists on near um who that's somebody who really seems to have taken that on board i see on twitter that they're out there really you know, spending a lot of time in the different communities, working hard and involving themselves on Discord and Twitter spaces. And that's an example for people who really want to make a go of of themselves as a one-of-one artist. I see my work very differently and scarcity is a big thing for me. I'm not a big mentor of stuff. My work takes a long time and I'm probably waiting for a super rare to come to near or an exchange art from Solana, something like that. I'm waiting for something like that. That's probably really what I, I've been very lucky. I'm fortunate. You know, I've hardly got anything for sale. And most of my stuff gets collected because I was probably because I was one of the first people doing this and my work's unusual and there's not a lot of it. But the truth of the matter is the one of one conceptual market is embryonic at best on near. And we are waiting for a platform such as a super rare, something like that on Nia, perhaps. But it, it's, it's personal responsibility. You've got to do it yourself. I agree with everything you've said, and you've said so much. The first thing that I love is that in a former life, I was a lawyer, although I am not going to comment on the status of any PFP collection out there. Lawyers have a tendency to really be nitty-gritty with terminology. And while I hate that, because you can have you can have a lot of disputes with no substance, it can be misused in ways that it's, I believe, unnecessary. But in some cases, 
it is worth highlighting that terminology can be very loose or very open-ended or mean different things for different people. So for instance, right now, digital art, I feel it is extremely broad. And I really like the way that you have defined PFPs as community, utility, and graphic art being the last one of it, because we have NFTs as a tool and they are serving a really good purpose as a tool. They signify membership of a group, as I have described in the past. They're capturing a, a moment in time of, you know, nascent and growing crypto communities. But as far as digital art, it's definitely not all the way there. Like, I think it would be a first statement to say that the visual art aspect of it is less relevant. I see people aping into collections and they care about its FOMO. They want to be part of the community. They don't want to miss out. Perhaps they have some expectations about the utility of the token. So I guess that all that would be a way of saying that we haven't. The challenge that you and other one-of-one artists have, especially in the crypto world, is that historically art has been very elitist. You know this because you got kicked out of art school and you <laughs> I didn't your way back through crypto. Just to be clear, I got kicked off the, uh, the school art course, not art school. <laughs> yeah, a distinct lack of talent and a fascination for abstract expressionism will do that to you in the 1980s. You're proving them wrong, sir. And, and <laughs> but I guess that what I'm trying to get to is if the first proposition is that most people have not been exposed to art and when they go to an art gallery, the first thing that they say is, I can do that myself, mm. yeah. <laughs> as opposed to try to think of the meaning and whatever is behind the art and the artist. Then the second layer of abstraction is crypto is now enabling a new generation of artists that were locked out of art schools or art programs in high school and that they were locked out of museums and that they were historically locked out. Yeah. Now they have an opportunity to go to market. But then the second challenge is the consumer is also embryonic, as you say. So I think that it will take a long time to nurture that community. And conversations like this one and basically anywhere where people can learn more. For instance, I love that from your art, there is something that is very human, very natural. It's almost like telekinesis. No, <laughs> sounds like osmosis. I don't know. I'm saying the most strange stuff. Yeah. There's something about it that just connects with you. But I think that there are a lot of things that it serves as a window of opportunity for the user to go and learn more. And that's why I love that you sent me seven pages of notes, <laughs> which for any other artist, I would have been like, look, if it's important, yeah. just tell me during interview. I'm not reading that. But I actually read it several times and I learned a lot because yeah. there are elements of history and art and philosophy that most of us are not taught. Or if we are, maybe we're too young and they manifest through life as we go. And I don't know if this would be a good segue for that uh, philosophy bit. You mentioned that everyone in their teenage years have a crush on Jackson Pollock and Camus. So yeah. I don't know which teenagers you were hanging out with, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I yeah. don't know much about them. So please enlighten me. Okay. Interesting. So what, who do I want to be as a teenager? I suppose initially it would have been Joe Strummer or Paul, more importantly, Paul Seaman on the basis in the clash was probably who I'd like to have been. So it wasn't just Camus, Sartre and Jackson Pollock. But as I got, you know, in my second half of my teenage years from about 15 onwards, yeah, it was those things. Jackson Pollock, you know, it's one of those things, isn't it? the idea that everyone can do a Jackson Pollock. Yeah. Obviously, I, 
I, I don't think anyone truly believes that. The whole point was he was breaking open a process and and changing something that had never been done before. And to me, it was a it was a interesting moment because it basically just said art does not have to be representative just because you can't draw and you can't paint and you can't do anything like that. It doesn't mean that your thoughts about art are or just the process of making patterns is useless and redundant. So that was interesting. Camus, I spent the most boring summer of my life. Just really briefly before we dive into Camus, if you had to describe a Pollock picture to someone that has never seen one, how would you describe it? Because we've got the references of people thinking they can do it themselves, yeah. but they also have a very unique aesthetic approach. And I'd love yeah. to see how you describe it as an artist. Yeah, yeah. So Pollock was a classic. He'd been through the training. He was a proper artist. We did representational work. He had galleried work. And he famously one day started basically dripping paint, commercial gloss paint, over very large, unstretched canvases in, a, in his barn studio in Long Island. This is in just after the Second World War. And no one had ever, people had probably done this before, but no one had ever really done it. And he became obsessed with the process. And it's an interesting point about Pollock, actually, that relates into some of the one-on-one discussion is, is that, so these paintings were very large scale, appeared to be random, but they do have, you know, the, the swirls and the drips and the patterns do repeat in places. And there seems to be an overall, the further you stand away from them, as they say in crypto, when in doubt, zoom out. When you zoom out from a, a Pollock, you do get a different perspective until you zoom in and you see something very close up, which is, again, something I experiment with a bit on, on my work. So that's what a Pollock painting looks like. And one of the interesting things about Pollock is he, he numbered these paintings. He just gave them numbers because they were a process. So number one, number 27, and, and such like. But when he was represented by a gallery, the galleries asked him to basically give names, or they even, I think they might have even given names themselves to some of the paintings. So we ended up with things like, oh, I wish I could remember. I should be more prepared. One of them's, yeah, I think one of them's got a name such as Autumn Evening or something like that. I really should know this. That's terrible for me. But, and it's just crap, really, that we do, that we felt the need to do that. And it's something that I personally, you know, I sometimes see with one of one artists in, in, crypto where they produce an image and then they feel the need to give it a name based on the image that they've seen and i just think they should have more faith in what they've actually done as a process and rather than shove a title on but then again it's up to them i'm not going to tell people what they can and can't do speak completely out of right here because i'm not an artist myself but what really stuck with me from what you mentioned is the process and yeah. that the art is a sum of its parts in the process that makes it both in all the paintings that preceded, mm. but also in, in the, yeah, the process itself, whether you sprinkle it and the way that the canvas is laid out. And I think that perhaps, correct me if I'm wrong, a pleb talking to artists, in many ways, these paintings, as abstract as they may be, they actually represent or are very close or have much closer parallels with life in the sense that you may look at someone and you may think, oh, I can be like them or they're pretty average or whatever the case may be, but everyone is actually quite unique. And it's the sum of that process, both of their lived experiences and the challenges that they yeah. self-impose and how they can improve or change over time. Yeah. And I can see that 
process is interesting because I, some of my work, the nostalgia show is the vast majority of my work. I'm working, there's another sequence coming out I'm working on at the moment called the Significance Parade, which is, a, again, really about this, this degree of Guy Debord's spectacle in there. But it's really, it's interesting because it touches on crypto elements with the POAPs, the proof of participation. And it's about people's need to, to attach to large-scale movements, which obviously plays into the community aspect of PFPs. And so it's a burgeoning thought process I've had over the last year of thinking of how people need, and again, I think it's because we people are scared of, of being individuals sometimes, but that's my personal view. And they, they're scared of looking into the void of meaninglessness uh, of their, potentially of their life. So that's one, but there's a third part of my work, which is entirely processed. There's nothing, so I have these big, so nostalgia shows, significance parade of these big, you know, heavy kind of concepts with pages, as you well know, of thought behind them and 30 years usually of thinking about stuff. And then the, this feedback loops work that I do is really just process. It's about transferring sound into vision, back into sound, back into vision. And it's all process. And that's a, just a different style of work. So when when I see other uh, you know, artists who are you know, GAN artists or they have a process that they just, you know, a machine, if you like, they put into whether the machine is themselves or the machine is a, a, a literal machine. I think that's entirely valid and, and they're still tweaking it. It's like a synthesizer. You twiddle the knobs, you mess around a bit. The process reflects you, which is, I believe, part of the point you're making is that the individual controls the process and sets the parameters for the process. Uh, I think process pieces are really interesting, uh, where sometimes like the idea of process pieces, but I think when you start adding a title onto it, because at the end it looks like some sort of thing. It's interesting. It's a William Gibson reference that humans are obsessed with pattern recognition. And I suppose that's what's going on. I never really thought of that before, but I think that's probably it. We do pattern recognition is a big thing and that's what people are doing. But process is what's interesting and people controlling the process. Max Capacity is a great one for that. I don't know if you're familiar with his work, but his work, the process, it's a glitch process. And the, the base subject matter, yes, it's interesting, but it's really just a jumping off point for his process. I think... People are afraid of being lost or the void of hopelessness or some, I, I can't recall the exact words by which you described it, but I think that there's something deeper than that. We live in very unique times where we can basically connect with anyone anywhere in the world, but that doesn't change the fact that a lot of people live in places where if they are the curious type, the critical thinkers, they may be out of the box. The box is their town and their friends and their family. So I think that those people now have the ability to connect with others like them. And the idea that comes to mind is that art could be like that bat signal that attracts people, inspires their curiosity, enables them to connect. Or conversely, art can be that thing that enables them to express themselves and to capture and mm -hmm. to explore in a way that is secluded in some ways from their surroundings. And if I'm understanding criticism correctly, the moment you add that title, it's you've bridged the border back into the box and you've taken the entire creative process, which was very personal, introspective, unique. You've taken it back to the normies, but basically to ground it to something familiar for people. Yeah, I, I think I can see. I think the last statement is right in the sense that 
I, I think that's I think you're ground Pete, you are grounding it into something this idea of William Gibson's idea of, of pattern recognition being central to human behavior and philosophy. I can see that having the confidence to just say this is it, take it or leave it is it's difficult because people an artist making work on their own is the tree in the forest falling if they're not making it available to other people. And again, perhaps if you'd been around Long Island in 1947 or something like that making art you probably could have walked into a gallery and had half a chance but this is our boomerism and boomer conversation again but you have to get attention and you have to get the world's eyes upon you and part of that is is going to be about adding something that's relatable and and so i i I think it's a fair point you make relatable authenticity (laughs) yeah I don't think there. I don't think there is such a thing. <laughs> I just relatable authenticity. And I'll tell you what I'm thinking. You are a very unique artist. Your body of work it stands for a lot, and, and I think it's quite authentic. But you're also on this podcast. You're also yeah, yeah. means based. I think it's always possible to have a common denominator to establish that trust and to connect yeah. with communities. Yeah. The challenge is how can you get your message across without losing its essence? Yeah. And without putting you on the spotlight, I can tell you, I'm not going to say the name of the PFD collection, but people will probably be able to figure it out. I was speaking with a founder of a collection yesterday. We're talking about ways of increasing community engagement. We're looking at getting some very active community members involved. And one thing that we both agreed, like outright, like the first thing we said was, we don't want to do, we don't have the time. We find that it drains our energy to do the exact same copy-paste community engagement as every other PFP. Yeah. It's a waste of time. It's a waste of money. We we, we don't feel like we add any value. Like the community is not that big and everyone is just Discord hopping, wanting to make profits. That's not what we feel we're particularly good at. But what I did say was, I've had a pretty good streak over the last few weeks and months with a podcast, with a YouTube, with a Twitter. I've started to realize that Maybe there's a story that I can tell or maybe can enable people to tell stories. And that is valuable. That is authentic. That could grow in time. Yeah. If there was a way for me to leverage what is really unique and authentic and the value that I really bring and then connect that with an NFT series, yeah, we're crossing the boundaries back into something recognizable, some valuable holders. They can get some sort of perk or feel part of a community or get something unique. But what you're offering actually has to be authentic or valuable or differentiated. So anyway, I, I don't want to say more because then we fall into the, the board ape category of potentially illegal. Yeah, um, yeah. I think it's, again, I think that's a fair point. I think you said, started talking about relatable authenticity. Yeah, obviously I talked about your work recently. It's DeFi is the thing that's really happening on near. Obviously the, the NFT Bonanza in, in January with the PFP collections really took off, but it really feels like this current move in near is driven by DeFi and you seem to be at the heart of that education process for people. I can see that. I was thinking when you said relatable authenticity the first time, I was thinking, yeah, but is that authenticity when you're trying to make it relatable? But actually, yes, I, I think, you know, I tend to operate as a broadcaster. I know that sounds, what I mean by that is rather than a networker, it's interesting. I've ended up being far more community involved in Nia, and I'll talk, maybe we should talk about that in a minute, over the last year than I would ever imagine myself to be. Because 
as an individualist, as somebody who really is just broadcasting rather than interacting and networking, I found myself in really enjoying being involved in some, in some of the community aspects. And I've, I've relied on this broadcastable authenticity that basically this is what I do. This is it. I'm hoping that you'll pick up the clues. But I actually think you're probably right on that, that there's, if you present yourself, you know, authentically and people will either buy into it or they won't, the rest is marketing. The challenge for me now is actually to monetize. Because yeah. if you tell me, hey, go to X space and represent a brand or you are going as a professional or as an employee, it completely changes your demeanor. Conversely, when I go as an individual, as a member of the community, when I can speak openly that's where paradoxically i feel the value is created yeah and you have to tie it back to it is creating growth it is creating a community but how do you loop it all back together i just want to say i think you passed the test of uh boomerism and a, and a curious boomer because that is a major generational shift going from one directional communication tv radio there was very mm -hmm. limited feedback maybe you could send a letter to the editor once a week yeah. to entering the jungle of yeah. many to many relationships. And I think you've nailed it. Networking is so often misconstrued. Like I remember going, when I was back at university, going to networking events for the law faculty, my friends would wear their suit and they would identify the law firms that they wanted to talk to. And within the law firm, they would talk to specific people that had identified beforehand. I'd go there, I'd get absolutely drunk with free alcohol. <laughs> I'd eat all the free food and I would literally just talk to anyone that crossed my paths. And guess what? I knew everyone afterwards. Yeah, they looked yeah. at LinkedIn. They were like, hey, how do you know all these people? Can you introduce me? And I was like, I don't know, like networking. It's not collecting someone's contact details on a physical card back in the day. Networking is establishing relationships. You want yeah. people to remember your name. You want to have a laugh with someone. You want to connect at some level. Yes, maybe the end goal is to get a job or to grow the ecosystem by some metrics, but it only works if your relationships are authentic. So I think that, yeah, it's only possible when you stop trying. And yeah, this may be yeah. a horrible riddle for introverts. <laughs> <laughs> but it is, yeah. Interesting tweet this morning, actually, I saw, uh, I think Matt Lockyer brought it to my attention, which is uh, the someone was making the point that, that most conference content is useless and not worth the bother, but attending conferences is worthwhile. And that, that, that feels like a sort of, yeah, yeah, I know it's good, isn't it? I liked it as well. It just feels like a, yeah, there's, there's a bit of a paradox there, but it's true. That's exactly what you've just described. It's the, the spending time and uh, is worthwhile. The actual what's often revealed is probably not. That was my exact same experience. The content is good, but it is not unique. Like you're not going to see anything on stage that you don't already know if you're deep yeah. um, or that you can't go and read on blog posts, documentation, even podcasts like this one. However, having everyone at the same place at the same time, that's magical. Yeah. And if anyone wants to join me at upcoming conferences during the year, walking around with a near jumper. And afterwards with the Aurora jumper was amazing because it was like a self-selection bias. ETH Denver had several blockchain projects, but it was really interesting to see people's reaction. This is a technical crowd and there are a lot of people that are like near curious, 
like they've read about the technology, they've been keeping an eye on the ecosystem and they just really enjoyed. I was probably the first person that they talked to from the ecosystem. And because I'm not technical, I was basically just there to connect them with Grant's team. Yeah, It's really fun. We definitely made some very meaningful connections there and there are some pretty good opportunities that we're following through now. So I would highly recommend. Yeah, neither you or I got to Neocon last year. And uh, although I saw everything on the screen and uh, it's that the opportunity was missed. Unfortunately, I know you were restricted from traveling. I couldn't travel. And yeah, you know, hopefully I'm hoping it won't, it'll be in Lisbon again, but I suppose it's going to be somewhere completely different. Yes, I was indeed uh, in home arrest in, uh, <laughs> in my penal colony uh, down north. <laughs> The good news are that I made it out and I'm nomading for now. I may stay overseas straight through till Neocon. It hasn't been confirmed, but it is going to be last thing I heard somewhere in Asia. Could be yeah. Korea, could be Vietnam. So hopefully you'll be able to travel by then and we can connect yeah. in person. Yeah, yeah. Let's hope so. But this being just us closer to near and cryptocurrencies. So one thing I've been wondering throughout the conversation is these artistic, philosophical, just like very strongly held personal views, as you've said, they've always been there and, and they've simmered as you age. How closely are they related to crypto or is crypto just a tool to disseminate the art in the same way that AWS would be for Amazon, just putting yeah. things out and it being a neutral medium? Yeah, interesting question. As I said, obviously crypto got my attention over eight years ago now. And I spent a lot of my life being involved in new technology, new financial practices. And so obviously this is the ultimate new technology, new financial practice. So it feels, there's an, it felt like a natural medium, but it's interesting. My journey into NFTs, as I said, I, having Ridixi dismissed CryptoKitties in 2017, and I think I literally, I think Rim was asking me, asked me some questions and I part of what I copied to you. And I literally put, my reaction was, what the fuck's an NFT? WTF is an NFT. And uh, this was, I don't know, 2017, late 2017. And But interestingly, when I really got a grip on it, and it was uh, part of this, probably late 2020, and understanding digital scarcity, understanding everything, but it was really the implications that uh, by, by now I'd been involved in this. It was an audiovisual furniture thing. And I knew all these people who love music and had these expensive record players and stuff like that, all boomers, obviously. And so I was painting, I was putting these music graffiti paintings. And that was really all I was doing as an artist before crypto, because I had all these big thoughts. I had all these, these things I've been thinking about for 30 years, but as an outsider, it just felt impossible. It just felt, I, I knew that I, you go and see a gallery and it's like, where's your art school diploma degree or whatever. Where's your, then where's your Instagram feed? And it's, I haven't got either of those, but I've got these paintings that people seem to like. And they're like, oh yeah, that's interesting. But when I actually really got probably November, 2020, when I really understood what was going on, I remember feeling and describing it as the, it felt like the Berlin Wall had come down. It felt like this immense opportunity to sidestep the control mechanisms of, of the art establishment, if you like. And there are outliers. Obviously, people like Basquiat are complete outliers to the art, the kind of proven art journey. Um, but for me, crypto just felt like a, a, a revolution in that sense that I became a big fan. I still am of the, of the trash art movement. It's not my 
vibe it'll never be me it's not my thing but I, I loved what they were doing it felt like a genuine art movement in the sense that i would recognize as something from conceptual art where the message was the more important than the aesthetic appeal and, and so crypto to me well and i said describe it as the berlin wall coming down because it just felt like so the freedom from selection bias from from a, an art establishment i use the phrase in in the document i sent you the values three years at art school over 30 years of thinking about the nature of existence and your own personal philosophy and, and creative process. But it was also freedom from so much more. Last May, I was, so Mintbase was just about going live on mainnet. And I had a piece in a, an exhibition in Lisbon called The Rare Effect, run by Arroz Estudios, which is near Arroz Estudios, which is near Mintbase. And it was a physical digital thing. And so I sent, so we're in, Brexit had changed the regulations on sending stuff across Europe. I had to send a painting, three physical boom boxes as an installation, and obviously a digital work. And the digital work got there in obviously nanoseconds and was there on time. The painting took 10 days and just about got there, and it's now lost somewhere in our office studios. It's somewhere out there. I don't know if Vandal's stolen it, but it's somewhere out there. Hey, Vandal. And, but the, yeah, the three boom boxes that I sent out there, including the one that I feature in a lot of the work, they didn't arrive for, they never arrived. They went around, it took them six months and they came back to me where I, and it's so, I basically, it felt like a bit of conceptual art in itself that I'd, here was the work that I'd sent physically to a, to an NFT exhibition and it had never got there. And if ever, ever something summed up. The if there is ever a message from the universe, that yeah. was it. <laughs> yeah. Exactly, and, and and even better than that, the you know, the, so they're wrapped in a thing in a nostalgia warnings, the boom boxes. So it was a physical installation, and here we had what had changed, what had caused the big holdup was the new customs regulations that had come in post Brexit, and it just felt like a perfect you know moment um, to illustrate the difference between crypto art and or digital art, but mainly crypto art and physical art. I mean, I still I sell prints. I still do physical work. And I love what Near Publish, I don't know if you're familiar with Near Publish, uh, Sam Toshi and, and, and Okai and, and a few others are running. Are you obviously shout out to Near Publish and Sam Toshi. Yeah, exactly. Always a shout out to Sam. And the, the thing that they obviously they did some stuff for East Denver, which you may or may not have seen. And they're obviously going to be heavily represented at, at San Diego, the NFT conference at San Diego, which I think is the end of this week. And uh, some of my stuff was at Denver. Some of my stuff's going to be there at San Diego as well. And yeah, while I, I love the, I still do physical stuff. I still sell prints of my work. This, the, the real beauty of crypto art to me was the sidestepping of so many of these difficulties and barriers and obstacles, both in terms of gatekeeping access and also the logistics, the actual photography of work packaging freedom from the companies that that come and pick you up and then come and pick your parcel up and then lose it i just there was just so much the immediacy of it was just great i felt like i had so much more control so you know that's what it kind of meant to me but i've still got a foot in both camps physical and digital but really i pretty much neglect the physical now because i just find it suits me i can go anywhere in the world and do my work which is the thing like for you to talk about being a nomad I, i i don't need to cart it's a bit difficult for me because i do need to cart around objects i do need to find things and i do need to use paintings but 
it, it just felt it felt like a complete change. And I, and I must admit, I, so what does it mean to me? That's what it means. It means some sort of freedom from the obstacles and barriers, both logistical and in terms of access. Short answer. People who weren't alive, and especially that didn't live in Europe at the time of the Berlin Wall, would have a harder time understanding what the, yeah, yeah. What the Berlin Wall like meant or like yeah. signified. And that's why I really like your answer because I feel like crypto is predominantly young people and safe to assume most of them are actually not artists or art. But I think that the takeaway is every single industry, even something that seems as liberal as arts, has been captured by people, by regulators, by incumbents. And the fact that crypto as a platform, as an asset technology, being neutral, it is able to be used in creative ways by all these different verticals to enable people such as yourself to come from the outside and start participating. I think that's what we're going to win. Not only because we've got people such as yourself, let's say on, on the high end of the age spectrum, yeah. but because you guys are like the, the revenge of the geeks and the revenge of the oppressed and the revenge of all this potential. As you said, it's always been there. It's taken a lifetime to be able to manifest itself, but now it's coming out in full force. But if we go all the way to the lower end of the age spectrum, now we've got young people that some of these people are handling crypto before they're opening a bank account. Yeah. Can you imagine the reaction after experiencing all this freedom and all this possibility and all this access to information and collaboration? Can you imagine the shock? That they're going to leave when they go out into the real world and they experience some of the bullshit out there. Yeah. Yeah. It's almost, while it may seem like games and PFP monkeys and one-on-one art and, and podcasts and YouTubes, I do think, feel like we're building something which is almost inevitable. And granted, there is a lot of bullshit there that we have to weed out, but that essence of removing the barriers of access and enabling everyone fair play, you can't fight against that. Yeah, I think that's that's the utopian dream of crypto and, and the difference it's making to, you see these, but we come across, I come across people who I'd never would come across in real life who are, never mind, 30 years younger than me, nearly you know 40 years younger than me, who are, they're in the Philippines, they're making graphic art and it's changing their life. And, and it's fantastic. You know, I mean, it's just completely changing their, their whole, you know, narrative arc of their life and their future potential and everything. And it's fantastic to see regulation. That's the big topic, isn't it? The, we serve, I mean, when I was in the futures market, I used to think if ever they understood what we were doing in here, they would shut it. They come, not only would they shut it down, they'd come and shoot us all. And to a certain extent that happened in 2007, eight, the penny kind of dropped. People realized what was going on in terms of leveraged positions and uh, obviously things like collateralized debt became a reality for so many people and i i felt that way sometimes about crypto is that is they the governments and central banks haven't really quite got a handle on the sheer scale of it when i obviously talk to people my age because i am my age and my friends are my age and i explain to them the sheer amount of the side the you know, TVL and figures like that at the size of the DeFi and the, you know, I use the phrase shadow economy, but it's not really a shadow economy, parallel economy within crypto. And they just, it's a bit like my reaction to crypto kitties. They, they just cannot compute that this is happening. And I, I say, but this is, 
I said the scale of it and the size of it is unbelievable. So I do think that when governments and central bankers really understand what's going on, they will A, try to use it for some political angle. I saw that a bit yesterday in the UK with interesting double speak announcement from Rishi Sunak, the beloved chancellor, who said that we're going to be a world leading hub for crypto assets. And when you actually read, you read, that sounds great as a headline. And when you read it, that sounds like through regulation. And uh, there's an Orwellian aspect to, 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 and I think that's the one thing, the thing that I feel will have to happen is there, well, see, we're seeing some pretty scary legislation being passed in the EU. We're seeing some fairly scary legislation being discussed at, you know, the highest levels in the States. And it is a problem. I do think that at some point they will address the game. We will always move sideways. The crypto movement will move sideways and it will be a it'll be very, you know, movable feast in terms of uh, for the, those involved to go to, to get away from regulation. And I just think that there'll be a game between the regulators and crypto. I'd be interested to hear your thoughts. Look, the, I am a staunch free market supporter, mm. but I do realize that, I, I do recognize that the free markets require free and equal access to information. You can choose to ignore it, but mm. you need to have the information. The reason why I'm devoting so much of my time to creating content and higher ups have actually told me to stop talking so much shit and that they see me adding value in other ways in the ecosystem, or at least I'd be able to make a lot more money doing other things. But my question is, where do these regulators get their information from? Yeah. If you're in charge of making policy, if you are the consultant who is going to be in charge of advising these people, where are they getting the information from? Because we have a persistent problem in the crypto industry that the shittest voices, the clickbait, the, the hot dog coin of the day, those are the more prominent voices. And while it may be true that you can get engagement and monetize that, the reality is there is an infinite demand for high quality content. That's why we have a crypto podcast where we spend most of the time talking about people with brains and their life experience and their vision and what they're trying to build. We don't talk about price. We don't talk about how we're going to buy a Lambo in two years. Mm. So I do think that if we play our cards, we are going to have a demographic shift. Crypto is unique in the sense that when people experience it, they start thinking in different ways. I know that there are people right now that their first loan is on a DeFi platform. If we're going to a bank, the fact that you're taking a loan on a DeFi platform where it must be over collateralized makes it insane to think that you'd go to a bank and they give you, dude, I graduated university with $26,000 in debt on a credit card and I wasn't even a permanent resident. Wow. And I had a shitty cash flow job at a bar. Like the fact that they enable people to indebt themselves in such ways, you realize maybe we're getting exploited. <laughs> Maybe the perfect customer for a bank is people who have debt that they can't pay, but they make the minimum payment every month. So they keep paying the interest rates, yeah. which by the way, in Australia is 13% when the bank pays savers 0.5%. Yeah. Where is all the money in the middle going? So I feel like there's going to be a demographic shift. And if we have enough everyday people realize the potential and get you know information that at least sparks their imagination to see that the technology is good or can be used for good. Hopefully that then trickles down to politicians. Yeah. Americans are crazy, but there's one thing that we have to admire about they're able to mobilize. And as soon as the Americans started passing shit legislation or started threatening shit legislation, 
we saw some crypto personalities raise money. That's a yeah, yeah. coin center. I, I bought a jumper, actually. I've got it downstairs. I'm not wearing it because it's bloody hot in, in Mexico, but I've got a jumper. I paid 120 bucks plus shipping. It says Shady Supercoder. <laughs> <laughs> that was in an immediate response to a statement by a congresswoman yeah, yeah. You know, attacking the developers. And there's this other guy, what's his name? Uh, I think he's from Masari. A link in the show notes. He's been very active identifying which politicians are pro crypto, which ones are open to conversations and talking to them, and which ones are against it. And he's open about the need to have politicians who understand technology. And if they're not at that level, it's 2022, they have to go. I think Elon Musk buying Twitter. It's a, it's an interesting hint at technologists becoming more active in public yeah. discourse and potentially in governance. So as a former lawyer, I'm allergic to regulation. I, I know that regulation can be used in two ways. Going back to the UK example, there's what they call regulatory capture, where the incumbents lobby to create regulations that they basically lock out any competition. And you can 100% sit in the United States with the banking sector and how far behind it is compared to fintech in the UK or in Australia and in other regions. But if the UK plays a card, and they should, because it is a global market and there will be competition around it, Dubai is entering that market, et cetera, they could create what is like a regulatory, what's it called? It's like a safety box. Yeah. Uh, it's like a regulatory safe habit. So then maybe like, look, Within these boundaries, you can do everything, and hopefully, that is wide enough to enable innovation. I think you think these are all, uh, you know, f very fair observations, and and yeah, certainly, I think the UK opportunity is that having left the EU and the EU gone down a regulatory path, you are leaving yourself an opportunity open to to basically embrace crypto. And but my problem, the problem you've got with that is that politicians are working on such a short cycle of immediate feedback from their respective bases and they're playing to their bases so much and obviously the word base has become associated with right-wing um politics but it's true of the left as well and that's the one problem is it's so reactionary and reactive as opposed to actually sitting there and thinking okay i'm going to plan this for the next 10 years and that's the only worry really you know what i've something very interesting that i've uh experience during this recent trip. I was in Denver, Miami, Costa Rica, now Mexico. There's a very interesting cohort of Americans and Europeans descending in Central America. And most of them have similar stories to mine. COVID restrictions were way too harsh in Australia. I just need to break. I need to get out. The government became so controlling and micromanaging, and I just couldn't deal with being treated like mm. a criminal every single yeah. day. So anyway. The fascinating message to me is it is a real world macro example of the libertarian movement, the libertarian cause. We're not moving to Costa Rica and Mexico because the governments here are better. By any objective measure, the governments here are probably worse. But in some counterintuitive ways, the governments here in with all their faults and merits, it is the government's lack of involvement and even an attempt to control every day's people's life because they just they either don't care or are unable to that is what creates freedom yeah so i feel like 
the best position any government can take, and this goes to crypto as, as well as to basically everything else, is just take a step back. Do the bare minimum, consider the risks, cater for those edge cases, and then take a step back. The UK could do fantastically well if they say, hey, this is mm. crypto, these are the risks, we're going to regulate these three things. As long as you don't do these three things, do whatever you want. It is impossible yep. for people in suits to know what the technology is going to evolve. And I saw some fantastic memes and tweets about the European Union successfully locking themselves out of Web 2 progress yeah. <laughs> for over-regulation and then attempting to do the same with Web 3. So yeah, I hope the Brits do the right thing and they regulate, but they do so in such a minimal, mediocre way. <laughs> it, it, the thing is, I actually think they've probably got the aspiration correct in the sense that they probably are trying to make the, the phrase that gets slung around is Singapore on sea for a kind of fintech UK. But it's just another slogan and it leveling up is a slogan and it depends which way the news flow is going as to how these things end up. And that's, I think, I think there, there is an aspiration to the UK ahead as a, as a crypto hub, especially in complete opposition of what the EU have done. And I think there will be an aspiration to it, but I just think, I just, I sound cynical because I am just because it'll only take a few bad headlines from their favorite papers and to understand that they're, the ruling party in the UK, the Conservatives, are essentially voted in by people from age 50 and up. And that's not necessarily the target crypto audience. So it'll just take a few bad headlines have lost their fortune giving over their, uh, their past phrase. And anyway, but we'll see. Hopefully, I, I, I like to believe I, I'm a utopian. I like to believe in a post-scarcity utopia. And I think the way we get there is through technology rather than government control. And, and so let's hope so. Sir, I would support you running for any public office, <laughs> although I believe you can add more value elsewhere. Look, I am very mindful and respectful of your time. So just to start wrapping it up, yeah. I think we have established quite well that, what was the Bowie quote? Oh, the that age process. Yeah. Yeah. Extraordinary process where you eventually become the person you were always supposed to be. I think you were born to be in the crypto communities and to create content. I wouldn't say you cater for the crypto communities, but there's a very strong overlap between the values and beliefs and life experiences. My next question is why Nier and whether you played around other blockchains and what made you settle on Nier. I know that you're a Nier exclusive and that you have been since the very beginning before yeah. you rise to notoriety. Yeah, yeah, it's why indeed the the opportunity cost <laughs> of being a near exclusive one of one conceptual crypto artist is probably significant. What can you do? You only you have to live your authentic life. Why near? So my entry into near was as I said, I discovered I finally really understood digital scarcity and got interested in NFTs. In late 2020, I saw a defiant podcast with Robin Schmidt was the guy fantastic i love his just fantastic work he does and and he was talking about nfts and i was really trying to understand so much more about it and nate was on there from mint base talking about near protocol and i thought that sounds interesting I, this generational thing so my children are in their 20s and and we often talk about the climate situation this generational thing again about people my age and i spoke to rim about this as part of the ofp auction that we organized earlier this year is I was looking at the stuff on Ethan thinking, I don't know, uh, is it just one more thing to be going that, down that route? And I, I was unsure because that's clearly where the market was. And 
but I just happened to wander into, because of Nate, I wandered into near protocol on the test net for Mintbase in February, 2021. And it just, I just felt at home and I thought this is going to, everything I read, I just like these great threads you see every day now about how near is wonderful and incredible. And obviously we used to speak about this as a group, a bunch of us last summer and when near was crashing down to $2 and the technology was unchanged. The potential was unchanged. And it just, I've just felt at home. And I have to give a shout out to Chloe and the Chloe, the dev and Vandal for basically really including me very early on in the create base and the NXM guilds. And, and it, I just thought mint base, this looks, they're taking their whole business back to build on near protocol. I love the fact that it's carbon neutral. The technology seems amazing. I think I'm not going to pretend it's all, my decision was all based on these positive things that make me sound fantastic. I just thought I'm going to make my home here and I'm going to make the kind of work I want to do. And when Nia realizes its full potential, this work will be there and I will be one of the first people that was there. So there was, I was, I was thinking about the financial incentives as well as the artistic and the climate advantages but i did that was really i just it was a combination of many things i felt at home and obviously when tezos kicked off with hick and nook in, in probably march april last year i post people sale at sotheby's and oh was it christie's i can't even remember now they're both doing things now but you know Post the big people, $69 million sale, Hickatnunk took off. And that, and it was really, I was really impressed with it because I actually wrote a, a recommendation for someone to do something similar on near because it felt like a really interesting marketplace. And Mintbase's technology is fantastic. I've actually been on the testnet for their new UI this week. And it's, yeah, it's great. It's, it's really good. I can't and, wait. Yeah, and I, no, it really is for this. Obviously, it's still not finished, but it's, in, it's out there. I actually on the main net working the testing group and yeah no, uh, so to return to what i was saying a hiccup nunk saw that and i just again i thought yeah there's a market there but i just decided i was going to stick with near and i think the potential's there is people are waking up to it they have been waking up to it for the last four months and there's no reason why it can't go on to fulfill its potential whether there'll ever be a market for crypto art on there i don't know there'll be an nf there's certainly there's a burgeoning dynamic pfp nft market and that's only going to go from strength to strength we're seeing a bit of oversupply at the moment but that i think that all as near grows that all you know these early projects will be regarded and recognized for what they were but for me personally yeah that's pretty much how i got there that's really what's behind my decision it's on there are two sides to it one is that i think it's a fantastic place to be i think it's incredible technology for what i know of blockchain technology i think it's the fact that it's climate neutral is a big thing, but I, there isn't. There is a reason why I'm here as well, is it because I think it's the best opportunity for me to make the work that I want to do and for it to be recognised. And ultimately, that means selling. And I, I've been pretty lucky; most of my work sells. But it's you know it's still early days, and but we'll see. I can't see myself going anywhere else. If anything, I'm building more on Near. I've got this whole Jeff Gold's building this room for me and Near Hub called Radio Zite Warp. And it's a it's an abandoned oil rig, oil platform, which is a pirate radio station and exhibition space. And so, if anything, I'm building more roots in the Nero ecosystem. And uh, that's amazing. Make sure we we'll link it on the show notes. This is really interesting concept of like failing upwards. 
<laughs> and I think I may be using it in a different context here, but I, I, I keep saying that it takes a very special kind of people to stick around within your ecosystem throughout last year. And for people that were not around last year, it was patchy. There were ups and downs and other competing blockchains were exploding. Like when I got involved, Nier and Solana were both $2. Mm. And I bought Nier and Solana at $2. Solana went to $2.50. Nier went to 6 and then back down to 2 So I'd consider that stage of last year the failing. However, we failed upwards because we created such a strong community. I love that we weren't talking about price. There was an implied understanding that we had to build a technology that would grow into the price that we wanted to have. We weren't having uh, speculative chats. And I guess the word to contrast is, I feel like Solana grew too fast. Why? The community is completely broken. It, it, it spiked so hard that, yeah, people were just there for the money. They were, it's like they parachuted into a tsunami trying to surf it out. Yeah. And I think in some ways, Solana community is really good. They were open-minded to try the technology, but that same open-mindedness, we're now seeing them come over to Neo to try the new technology and they're really liking the community. It's not just the community. They're seeing different aspects of the technology around the user experience and how you can build apps differently. And I would argue much, much better. But I think that for a word that is so easily thrown around everywhere and anywhere, the community at Neo really is special. And, mm. you know, once again, like part of the inspiration for creating this content is because we've got some gigabrains who have created a network that can scale infinitely, dynamic sharding, and it can be cheap. All the technical boxes are ticked or we've got big brains working on it. The real question is, how can we scale community? How can we make sure that all the new people, and I'm speculating, but I think that on a conservative approach, we've got hundreds of new people arriving every day. How can we make sure that they get the right messages, they get the information, they know what's happening, how to stay up to date. So hopefully with simple conversations like this one that I'm just having a blast, we could get more people um, up to speed. And I think you've made a very interesting but correct calculation there, Sarah. Well played. Yeah, let's see. Let's see. Uh, as I said, I, I find digital art, crypto art, the mechanism of NFTs, the medium, which is the medium rather than the art form. It suits me. I think it's an opportunity. I think near is an opportunity, but also the community aspect is interesting. I said, at heart, I'm an individualist. I, and I do believe communities come together for, to work together for their goals. You can see think people split apart very easily under pressure. And so I think communities are groups of people with aligned goals. Either it can be coming together to fight an enemy or to achieve something. And that's the, at the heart of what a DAO is for me, is a community of people coming together to try to achieve something. And I'm a, not a natural community person uh, by any means, but, and I have, you know, I can't really compare the community on Solana or near because I've been near exclusive, although I've been, although I've been involved in, in, in owning crypto for a long time, I've not actually been involved in, in the, in like the ecosystem or the ecoverse of these currencies. And it, it's, it's, it's just been interesting to me, the community aspect. And that's, I said, a lot of my, my other series of work that I'm, bringing out this year the significance parade touches a lot on community and because again i feel there's a kind of paradoxical element at the heart of communities as well which is 
again, I can probably talk for an hour about that, so I won't. But the, the there's no getting away from it. Nia doesn't have, yeah, we've got the usual scammers and we've got the usual, we get the usual bad actors. But there isn't, everyone's got this sense of working together to a common goal, especially amongst the competing PFP projects. These are people that normally, I mean, I, you hear the odd comment of somebody trying to uh, hire somebody else's staff, but they're just not trying to burn each other down. They're all working together to, to raise the tide for all boats. These may age very poorly because we are yeah, 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 yeah. attracting a lot of people daily and there are bad practices that will no doubt come to us. However, I do think that especially for that early community, late last year, early this year, we do have a very strong sense of purpose. And I think mm. that, you know, there's many layers to it. Obviously getting near to mass adoption would be one. And you can see the very strong collaboration between the people writing the code, the people amplifying message, the people bringing culture and onboarding people. But I think that a layer deeper is the vision for the decentralized web. And it's probably a statement there around like big mm. tech and unlocking opportunities in different parts of the world. I think that really goes to the core of the definition of a platform. Yeah. It can really be used in many different ways by different people. Now, I love that you mentioned the significance parade. Let's plug it properly, sir. Significance Parade is an examination of the gravitational attachment of individuals to large-scale events, movements, brands, etc., and the economy that caters to those needs. Partly inspired by Guy Debord, as I used it. Guy Debord, yeah. Guy Debord. The society of the spectacle, but touches on the interplay between individualism and community and the human need for meaning and relevance. Sir, I can't wait for this one. When is it dropping? Like, a bit like the nostalgia show, it's a work in progress. Uh, it'll be years. So, But the first works will be starting to be released in the summer. I, I'm thinking around June or mid-April almost. And so, yeah, I, I can see some work coming in June, first few bits. But it will be an ongoing thing that kind of, it'll happen for the next few years because that's the that's my process. So the same as the nostalgia show, there'll just be a series of work falling and dropping. And as more I think about it, the more it will change. But this, it's a multifaceted idea for me in my head at the moment and i'm really at the planning stage trying to think how it looks what it looks like what are the aesthetic elements as it were that that if you like present the message i've got i, I understand what i'm trying to say but trying to think how to present it is the thing and then i have to try and accumulate the various artifacts that will go into the eventual artworks you can't really put a timeline or a, what's it called uh pressure the creative process so yeah as long as it takes I'll be here eagerly waiting to buy at least one. I feel like I need more, more side warp in my art portfolio. Moving on to a rapid fire round. Are you ready? Yeah, go for it. Okay. Are there any artists in the New York community or digital artists in general that you think are up and coming and that you would recommend people check out? Oh, that's pretty tough, actually. The As I, I mentioned Everett earlier, I think his, he's pretty well known already within Near. I think he's doing a lot of things that have pretty interesting because they, they bridge the gap between one of one and the sort of PFP communities. I think he's got a collaboration of the Starry Night work that he's just been talking about. Sam Toshi, I'll give a shout out to because I mentioned graphic art earlier and I would have loved to have been a comic book artist when I was 10 years old, but the lack of talent and ability, not many people want a stick man comic. So, you know, he's doing some work with Near Hub. They're, in fact, they're about to, I don't know if you're aware, they're, they're doing a, a PFP NFT project themselves. So yeah, I can't try to think up and coming. I can't think of anything, but that's probably me being insular. 
And that's me being uh, an asshole and putting you on the spot. <laughs> yeah, and it wasn't and it wasn't a quick fire answer either. Sorry, we're failing in both both sides. If you do think of anyone else, we can always at them afterwards. I've been very uh, thorough with the notes for each show, uh, which has taken me a ridiculous amount of time. But hopefully, people find value in those. Okay, next one. If there are any artists or aspiring artists, especially street artists, people that may have been locked out or ostracized by the traditional arts world and are inspired by this conversation, which resources would you recommend for them to get started? It could be books, could be websites, people to follow, anything to help them along their journey. Everything starts with Twitter when it comes to crypto. For me, that's where you educate yourself initially. And follow Rob Ness, some of the other trash guys. I, I think you have to start there because you get the history there. Plus, it depends where if you're coming from, which kind of background, street art side. Yeah. Again, why not start there with Rob Ness and the trash art people? So it's the thing that got my attention. Rob Ness would certainly get people's attention because he only ever tweets in all caps. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, I, and yeah. I bet he doesn't use the caps lock either. Last one. Are there any books or movies that you've seen or read recently that would, you would recommend? To I'm working through the William Gibson books at the moment and really enjoying them. I'm a prolific reader, actually. I, re you know, I read heavily. It's, uh, it's one of the things I really enjoy. I don't watch a lot of TV. I read all sorts of different books, but I tend to read a lot of fiction. I really enjoy I can really recommend them. If you're into crypto and telling the future and... So much of, of the work of his thoughts are interesting about present and the future. And can, you have to bear in mind when they were written, they're fantastic books. So I'm actually working my way back through them at the moment. J.G. Ballard's a big interest of mine, but the books are very, talk about some of their conceptual literature in many senses, because they are, I remember him described like a Ramon song. It's the same message over and over again, but I, I really like them. I think they're an interesting read. So yeah, they're, 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 they're books I would recommend. There is a perhaps unsurprisingly overlap between uh, crypto people or at least crypto people doing remarkable things and uh, reading and especially reading science fiction and yeah. conceptual literature as, as you've called it. Awesome. Well, Zidwalk, thanks so much. I'm not sure how the semi-pseudonymous aspect is going Just after this one, but... Yeah, yeah. I, it's uh, when I say semi-pseudonymous, because although I I use the name Zidwalk, it's a half-hearted nom de plume, should we say. It's just, it's funny, so many people in crypto have a name that they, a creative name that they work under. And, and it was something that came out of Web2, I think, really. For me, it did. It's just, you join forums, you're doing things, and you basically have a persona or a name that you ad uh, adopt and, and then you adapt to it to a certain extent. But yeah. Mine as a teenager was Pizza Boy 69. So <laughs> just say that I grew out of that one. Nothing wrong with that. Nothing. Yeah. So make, make a comeback. Who knows? I'll go reserve the dot near name now. So I think you better. Yeah. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, I'd work a pleasure as usual. Thanks so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thanks. It's been great. Really enjoyed. Okay.